0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So there is a large percentage of you who are very acutely aware that today— is kickoff Sunday for the NFL. Football is back. Uh, Many of you are happy about that. And the the proportion of people that are happy about that to the people that could care less about that is probably about 50-50. I understand that. But for the next five months or so, football is going to permeate the air. We live in a city with a good football team, I hope. Some of you follow college football. You already saw that Nick Saban had to pay up on his deal with the devil already once this year as they came back last night. As we sort of think of all of that, I can't help but be reminded of one of my favorite moments in the history of professional football. The Bears were an incredible team in 2006, but their last preseason game, the preseason game where it was gonna matter, the third game, I should say, the Arizona Cardinals came in and use their rookie quarterback to absolutely mop the floor with the Bears. Fast forward two months, the Bears are 5-0, going into Arizona, and the rookie quarterback is going to get the start. Matt Leiner's going to get the start. Well, things are going really well for the Arizona Cardinals. They're up 23-3 to with two minutes left in the third quarter, and then the wheels fall off. The Bears proceeded to score three touchdowns without an offensive player touching the ball. But that's okay because the Cardinals get the ball back. They march down the field and they miss the field goal and lose. And their coach at the time, Dennis Green... After this epic collapse of a game that they should have won, a game that they they had every right to be winning, a game that in the preseason they had shown they could win, Dennis Green has to face the media. And so he goes out there and they start peppering him with questions and he becomes more agitated and he becomes more agitated until finally... Denny Green starts saying a quote that whether you're a fan of football or not, you quite possibly have heard. He begins to scream, the Bears are who we thought they were. They are who we thought they were. And then he slaps the po- podium and walks off. He, he had another phrase or two in there that I'm obliged not to say in this context, uh, but slaps the podium and walks off. They are who we thought they were. It's funny when you think about that phrase, right? He's talking about the fact that we knew that they were really good at defense and we just couldn't beat them. But think about who you know. When we walk down the street, we don't know many of the people that we see. We don't know what their lives are about. We don't know who they are. But even with our close friends, we might know a little bit more about them. You might meet somebody here at church and know a a factoid, you know what neighborhood they're from, or you remember their name or what job they do. But it's not often that we really get to know people. One of the reasons why it's hard for us to really get to know people is we have this tendency in ourselves, and this isn't all of us, it's a, a defense mechanism we have that we don't really want to know the deep details and flaws in other people. Our brain just sort of cancels them out and just sort of goes, no, I am not. I don't want to think about that. And in fact, that's how a relationship grows in depth and intimacy is by being honest with one another, by connecting with one another and looking those flaws and those differences and those hard places square in the eye. But we tend to not do that because it's complicated to really get to know another person. We're a ball of good and bad, of flaws and triumphs. But when we begin to genuinely look at somebody else, we grow in how we are able to know them. The same is true with God. But here's what happens for most of us. For most of us, as we look and learn who God is, it's easy for us to become uncomfortable with what we see. God defies all of our categories. God doesn't always do what we expect. Sometimes God does stuff that we kind of say, wow, I kind of, I kind of thought that would go in another direction, I kind of thought that would be a little bit different. And when we put God into the box of our expectations, what happens is we shield ourselves from knowing who he really is. When we say God must conform to what I already think about God and do not let God speak for himself, we, we sort of ignore that path. Yeah, that, that passage of scripture is weird and hard. I'm just going to put that away. Or you know what? I'm just going to explain that and to hand wave it and it goes away. No, Whenever we do that, whenever we try to sort of prefab God into the way that we imagine him, we stunt our ability to grow and know him. We harden our hearts toward him by looking away or shielding our eyes. This morning, we are going to look at the first nine of the 10 plagues. And I promise you what's going to happen is sometimes I'll say nine plagues because I'll remember where we're at. And sometimes I'll say 10 because just as Christians, it's like the 10 commandments, the 10 plagues. When you say those words, they just kind of go together. But we're going to look at the first nine this week. And then we're going to look at number 10 next week. If you've been around church for a while, you are familiar with the story of the 10 plagues. If you grew up going to children's ministry or VBS, this was like an all-time banger, right? This was like a, every year they're gonna pull this out. I mean, for those of you who have been around long enough, the flannel, gla- flannel graphs are immaculate on these. This is like an all-time children's story. If you don't know what a flannel graph is, that's probably a good thing. And thank you for being here. You probably have a little bit more spiritual health than those of us who do. But the way that we know this story, the way that we think about the story and learn about the story of the 10 plagues is oftentimes this sort of Bible trivia. Ah, yes, locust before hail. Ah, yes, I know what order they go in. And we just sort of learn the 10 plagues as 10 bad things that happened that God did, I think. And then we just sort of move on to the good stuff that comes after. But actually Exodus chapters seven through 11 are rich and complex. And they give us the story of not just what God did, but the writer of Exodus, Moses gives us a picture of why God sent these 10 plagues? Why God decided to punish Egypt? Because when you think about that, that sort of goes against the way that we often like to think about God. God is love. God is love and he's always nice to everybody all the time. And then we come across these 10 plagues where God smites an entire nation, and our temptation is to look away, to explain it away, to sort of ignore it. But God intentionally inflicted 10 supernatural disasters on the people of Egypt. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Now, let me tell you, you can thank me later because I'm not going to read the entirety of Exodus chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 to you this morning what we're going to do is we're going to read the preface, the the what happened just before the first plague, because it sets the table. And then we're going to read the story of the seventh plague, the plague of hail. And so if you're following along, what we're going to do is is read a little bit from Exodus chapter 7, 1 through 13, and then we're going to read from uh, chapter 9, verse 13 on. It'll be on the screen behind me, but if you would, please stand as I read God's word this morning. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. And then in chapter 9, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. City Church is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So our story begins with one last plea. One last chance for Pharaoh to get it together before things are going to start to fall apart. God sends Moses and Aaron in, and he gives them a heads up. Hey, Pharaoh is going to want you to prove that I should listen to you. He's going to want some sort of miracle. He's going to want some sort of thing for you to do. You need to be able to prove this. And so God gives them a sign. When you throw down your staff, it's going to turn into a snake. And so... They go into Pharaoh's house. They talk to him. He demands a sign. They throw down the staff and it becomes a snake. Well, Pharaoh gets his magicians together and they do the same thing. They are somehow able to recreate this. Now, all of a sudden, there's all these snakes running around. Pharaoh is so tired of all these snakes in this palace. But but what happens next is the snake that came from Aaron's staff begins to eat the snakes of the magicians. And we sort of read this and go, hey, this would make a great film. Maybe we can get Charlton Heston attached to it. This would be great. But instead, there's something actually going on here that is significant. Because this idea of Moses and Aaron's staff eating the staff, snake, serpent, of the magicians is actually a prequel. It's a, it's a, a preview of everything that's going to go on after this as we walk through the plagues. Because it, the plagues are not just a series of unfortunate events. It's not just sort of, uh, nice or bad things that happened to the people of Egypt. No, there is intention behind each one of these plagues. Each one of these plagues is specific. And not only that, but they're set up on on a rhythm. As you read through, if you were to read through all nine of these plagues, the, the eight that I skipped, what you would find is there is sort of three and three and three. Moses goes and meets Pharaoh by the water and confronts him there and it doesn't go well. And God sends a plague. And then Moses goes to Pharaoh's house and confronts him there. And it doesn't go well. And God sends a plague. And then God doesn't even bother sending Moses. In the third time, he just says, just go out and proclaim the plague and we'll go from there. And then the fourth is just like the first. And it just keeps repeating itself. Anytime you see repetition and cycles in the Bible, we ought to pay attention because that's how Hebrew writers, that's how ancient Israelite writers would draw attention to something. And as we see this repetition, as we see this cycle, what we're seeing is that God is in control of everything. This is not nine random events that God kind of predicted. No, rather these are targeted attacks by God on all of the belief systems of the people of Egypt, each one of these plagues, each one of them, was meant to go after one of the gods of the Egyptians. God was showing that He was greater than all of their deities. The Egyptians worshipped a ton of gods. If you grew up and had to learn about Greek mythology, maybe you had to read the Iliad when you were in middle school. You sort of learned about all the different gods that the Greeks had. The the Egyptians were in much the same way. And as you go through these, you see how God attacks each one of these. The first plague is that the river Nile turns into blood. The river Nile itself was the goddess Hopi. She was the goddess of fertility. And God says, yeah, I can turn all of your prosperity into blood. I just did. The, the second plague is a plague of frogs. One of the Egyptian gods, and I'm going to wreck this name, Heket. he was always pictured as a human with a frog's head. He was one of the gods of prosperity. And God said, you know what? I'm going to send frogs throughout all the land of Egypt. There's actually something funny in the second plague that happens, which the first and second plague, the magicians of Egypt are able to replicate. The Bible doesn't say how, we don't know how, but they're able to replicate it. So Moses turns the Nile into blood and then the magicians turn the Nile into blood, which probably wasn't helping much, but it gets worse in the second one because Moses sends this plague of frogs. These frogs are everywhere. The, The Bible says they're in people's bedrooms. They're in your kitchen. You cannot get rid of them. There are frogs everywhere. And then the magicians say, Oh, we can do that. And they send it out and they send frogs everywhere. Can you imagine that meeting afterwards with Pharaoh? Um, guys, not helping. <laughs> we already had too many frogs and you made more frogs. Why didn't you make the frogs go away? You know what? Never mind. God systematically goes after each one of these Egyptian gods. The, the plague on the cattle was a, was a attack on Apis and Hathor, the cow and bull gods, over and over again. This is God saying, the gods of Egypt are false. I am the only true God. I am the one true God. And it sort of brings it to its height on the one Egyptian God that many of us know, some of us because sci-fi, some of us because we paid attention to school, but the head of all of the Egyptian gods was the sun god, Ra. And what is the ninth plague? Darkness. Ra is defeated. Ra is completely sent home. For three days, the sun doesn't rise in Egypt. All these gods are false and silly, Justin. We know that. None of us, none of us worships Ra. This is great. Yeah, God can go get him. But beloved, how often do we talk about the fact that our hearts are so quick to make idols, to make objects of worship out of so many things around us in our lives? Yes, we don't bow down to a fertility God that we made to look like a person with a cow's head. But think about what a fertility God meant. It was a means to the end of prosperity. It was growing your business. Your livestock and cattle were growing and flourishing. That's why you would worship this God. And so how often do you and I worship financial prosperity? How much do we spend ourselves chasing security and prosperity, daydreaming about the next thing we're going to buy, turning on the Apple event so you know when you can buy your next new Apple gadget? That one might be autobiographical, but it's how we turn our prosperity into an object of worship. None of us carve out statues to some God of healing, but how many, spend, how many of us spend our lives working and worrying about our health or the health of a loved one? None of us, I know, worship the God Ra, I don't think. But how many of us expect that the sun is going to rise tomorrow with no thought that if God says it's not, it won't? God is in the business of tearing down our idols, of making himself the only thing that we worship. He is in the business of directing our attention back to him. And he, if he has to go hard after our idols, if he has to bring calamity to those areas of our lives in order to capture our attention, he will. Church, we should read the story of these 10 plagues and think hard about the ways that we have worshiped and given our hearts to created things and not their creator. And so we come to this seventh plague. I want to talk a little bit about this because Pharaoh continues plague after plague to just not let the people of God go. A couple of times he changes his mind and says, okay, 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 I'll let you go. And then the plague relents and he's like, ah, oh, no, just kidding, just kidding. He's like, like my six-year-old, right? You know, <laughs> anytime he says he's gonna do something, it's almost always followed up with a just kidding. Pharaoh gives Moses and by extension, God, a lot of just kiddings. He even admits a couple times during the course of the story that he's sinned. He says, oh, Moses, I've sinned. You, oh, Moses, I've sinned, pray for me. And then as soon as whatever bad thing that's happening Changes, Pharaoh goes right back to what he's doing. But this is exactly what was going to happen. If you've been with us for the past few weeks as we've walked through this story of Exodus all the way back to the burning bush, God said, Hey, you're going to go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's going to say no. And then you're going to ask him again and he's going to say no. And then I'm going to send plagues and he's going to say no. God has already laid out that this is going to happen. Which leads me to a question, makes me think about something, right? If God knows that it's only the 10th plague that is going to get Pharaoh over the hump, it's only the 10th plague that's going to get Pharaoh to say, okay, fine, the people of Israel can go, why doesn't God just skip to the 10th plague? Why does God have Egypt and Pharaoh? go through all of this? Why does God go through each one of these, dragging them on and punishing the people of Egypt? Thankfully, the answer to that question is actually there in the text. If you look at chapter 9, 15, and 16, it says, God is doing all of this to show them who he is. He's doing all this so the whole earth will know his name. All of these plagues, are the creator God of the entire universe unraveling his creation to show his power. He sends flies and locusts wherever he chooses. He drops killer hail and lightning storms in the place that he picks. He can black out the sun for days on end. God is more powerful than we could ever possibly imagine. A few weeks ago, I guess it's been months ago now, I was able to take my family to the Kennedy Space Center. And by that I mean I dragged my family along with me because I wanted to go to the Kennedy Space Center because I'm a huge nerd. And it was so cool to be over there to sort of remember all of the things that we have done in space and then to see, to see some of the new rockets. And watching this week as launch after launch got scrubbed, but it's amazing what they're doing. And they're like talking about, oh, this rocket is seven times more powerful than the Apollo rockets. Artemis rockets are gonna be 12 times faster. And you know, all these multipliers and how much better technology we have now. And all of the power that it takes to shoot a rocket into space, to free humans from the gravitational pull of the planet is nothing in comparison to somebody who could snap his fingers and turn gravity off. We can talk all we want about these incredibly powerful machines and they pale in comparison to what God could do with the blink of his eye. He wouldn't even have to lift a finger to stop the earth from spinning. God wouldn't even have to pay any attention to the fact that he could stop us from rotating around the sun. All of the natural order exists because God says so. He let all of this go on. God knew Pharaoh's heart and he let it drag on so that we might know God's power. So that the people of Israel might know how much God can do. He is in full and complete control of every aspect of this world. And this is important for us, church. Because right now, for us, it can feel like a lot is out of control where we don't know what's coming next, where we don't know where all of this is headed. But what we do know because God showed us is that he is in complete control of whatever comes next. That's the kind of God that we serve. And so as you read on in this story, I think one thing that you might be asking yourself that I know I ask myself as we walked through this Is this, is all of this fair? I mean, God seems to like be going pretty hard after the people of Egypt. Is that fair? Did God really have to do this? I mean, some critics of the Bible read a text like this and accuse God of being fickle and mean. Do they deserve all of this? But here's the thing. Asking if Egypt deserved all of this, if God was right to send all of these natural disasters is a question that has a misguided assumption in it. It has a wrong perspective built in to that question. Because when we ask that question, we're asking an Egyptian question. But think about the perspective of the people of Israel who had been enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Do you think anyone in the land of Israel was going, I don't know if that's very fair. Not a single one of them was saying that. Not a single one of them looked around and said, oh, man, does Egypt really deserve this? No, they had been oppressed for 400 years years. God will not let injustice go on forever. And he will cleanse it however he sees fit. He will not let sin go unpunished. Now, the timing of this is not always the timing that you and I want. I mean, I'm sure the people of Israel that lived 360 years before this would have preferred, you know, the later of this. They had hundreds of years as they lived in this moment, but God was ever faithful. As Peter reminds us, God is not slow as we count slowness, but is patient, wanting people everywhere and every way to repent. God does not let evil run amok forever. Church, this is good news for us. This is especially good news to our brothers and sisters in China. This is especially good news to our brothers and sisters in Iran. God will not let harm and oppression and injustice go on forever. This is good news for our brothers and sisters in Central Africa who are being persecuted. God is going to set all things right. Maybe not in this generation. Maybe not this year. Maybe not for 400 years. But oppression and injustice will never, ever have the last word. God will always deliver and redeem his people. And so this is a comfort to us, a comfort to us as we face trials, as we face whatever trials lay ahead of us as people, as a church, as Christians. But this is also comes with a warning. We have comfort in this, but we're also warned by this because if I was right in saying that you and I might worship other things besides God in our hearts, then we are not just the victims, but we're the victimizers. We're not just the oppressed, we are the oppressors. We are not just those who have been sinned against, but we are those who have sinned. And if that's true, That puts us under the eye of the justice of God. That puts us in the same place as the Egyptians. That means that we're marked for some sort of reckoning. If we've worshipped success or the affirmation of the crowd, if we've stepped on others to get there, God looks at us. But here's the thing. He doesn't do so. He doesn't send plagues on you and I. Why? Why is it that God does not send plagues on you and I? Because Jesus took the plagues that you and I might go free out of the land of Egypt. Just like there was darkness for three days that covered the whole land of Egypt, there was darkness for three hours that covered all of Jerusalem as Jesus hung on the cross, taking all of the punishment, all of the pain, all of the the, blasphemy and treason that you and I have committed against God, Jesus was taking on himself in that moment. Beloved, God is a God of justice and of righteousness. He is a God who punishes sin and evil. He brings destruction in order to set the world right, but he is also a God who graciously steps into our world. He steps into the world of sin and oppression. He lived in an occupied territory and was killed by a dictatorial superpower. We have to look at the whole of who God is. We are always so tempted to either focus on, on one side or the other, to say, ah, yes, God is a God of love. And so we just love everyone. Ah, yes, God is a God of justice. And so people are going to get what they got coming. But both of those things are true both of those things are true and they meet in the cross of Jesus where God's love is shown towards us by him taking the justice that we deserved those things meet in the cross of Jesus in the darkness of that moment if we're going to grow and mature in our faith if we're going to grow in understanding who God is we can't reduce him to one or the other we have to hold them in tension and the only way we hold them in tension is by looking at the cross by looking at what Jesus did for us, looking at the depths of our sin and the heights of his grace. And when we see those things, what they often do, what they should do in your heart and mind is lead us to worship, lead us to joy, lead us to grow deeper and deeper into him. May we be a people who see God for all that he is even when we have to hold those things in tension. And may we see the cross as the place where love and justice meet, where you and I are both forgiven and made new by Jesus Christ. Let's pray.